When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to BrewHistory.com. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Henry of Bro History. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Bro History. And today, I am talking about Saudi Arabia again. Yeah, I know I've been speaking about Saudi Arabia a lot, but you know what? It's an interesting topic right now. They're in the news. It's relevant. And uh, at this point... There's been people who have been messaging me on Facebook questions about Saudi Arabia, so I might as well just continue the topics that people are are eager to learn more about it. So um, I wanted to talk about the transition that Saudi Arabia is going through right now, and just give you to give you a brief history on Saudi Arabia. So right now, the current Saudi state, the, the, the current Saudi kingdom, is the third kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So there are two other states. Prior to this one, um, the first state was when um, the Saudi tribe made an alliance with uh, Wahhab, which uh, created a state that was founded on the ideals of Wahhabism. Uh, that's why Saudi Arabia, as of now, is probably the most uh, well. They adhere to the, the strictest form of Islam. You know, they 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 stone women for adultery. They have public beheadings. Women are not allowed to drive. Well, they weren't allowed to drive. They are now. Um, I mean, with all due respect, their values couldn't be more diametrically opposed to U.S. values. So the first Saudi state was actually conquered by the Ottoman Empire um, by, by Muhammad Ali of Egypt. His son went over and he conquered the Saudis when they were expanding across this, the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Um, so they were shut down then. But another Saudi kingdom formed. Um, but what happened there was that there was a civil war within the family and uh, the, the Saudi kingdom uh, evaporated, essentially. But then there was a third Saudi kingdom. This is the Saudi kingdom that we're speaking about today. Um, the Saudi kingdom, I guess the official start, or maybe it's the unofficial start of the Saudi kingdom, is when um, Ibn Saud, he saged Mecca and kicked the Heshemites out. The, uh, the Heshemites were the, uh, the rulers of, of or the, uh, they were the wardens of, of Mecca during World War I. And uh, they were actually the family that the, the British and the French were, were dealing with. And they actually put those families in charge of, of Jordan and Iraq after the war. Now, when does the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States begin? Well, technically, that does begin in the 30s. Um, in the 1930s, they, 
Western powers, they had a hunch that there was going to there was oil in Saudi Arabia just because there was oil in Kuwait, there was oil in Iraq, there was oil in Iran. So they're like, hmm, I wonder if oil's in Saudi Arabia. And uh, they eventually found oil, and the Saudi family, uh, they wanted to make a deal, but they didn't want to make a deal with the British and the French because the British and French were both imperialist. They didn't want to become client states or part of the British Empire. So what they ended up doing is they made a deal with the Americans. They made a deal with Standard Oil to refine the oil in Saudi Arabia. So that's where the official relationship really begins between the United States and Saudi Arabia. After that, I guess what what heightens our relationship or what makes us closer uh, closer was uh, what happened in, in World War II. So World War II, one of the big things and one of the major problems that, that defeated Germany was their lack of oil. They only had one oil field, and that were those were the oil fields in Pileski in Romania. And those... Those oil fields were pretty much obliterated uh, as soon as the Allies had the chance. And the Germans ended up running out of oil. And you can really see that in the Battle of the Bulge when they were on their way to the English Channel. Um, the Battle of the Bulge was Germany's last attempt to win the war. They, they had this big counterattack through Belgium. Their goal was to split the U.S. and split the British armies and then go ahead and trap the British army up in the Netherlands where they would go ahead and annihilate them. And then hold the hold the Americans down there, and then you know take all their forces back on the eastern front where where they thought the real war was. Uh, what happened was that they ran out of gas on their way to the English Channel because they were driving these big ass Tiger tanks and Panther tanks, and they couldn't really you know they couldn't meet the the, the, the tanks. Uh, the oil the, the oil did not meet the demands of of their equipment. So we see that the United States realizes how important oil is to modern warfare so at that time fdr he goes over and he flies to egypt and he meets the saudi king on a ship in the suez canal on valentine's day and they make a under the table deal where pretty much the u.s agrees to protect the saudi family no matter what from external and internal threats so democracy starts looming the U.S. will help crush it. If there's an invading force, the U.S. will help defend the Saudi family. And in exchange, the Saudi, fa- Saudi family agrees to sell oil no matter what and keep the, you know, keep the, they, they made a deal where they're going to keep the oil flowing. So since then, there's been highs and lows of the Saudi-U.S. relationship. The, the highs being the, I guess, the joint cooperation between Saudi Arabia and the United States to fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan by creating uh, madrasas in Pakistani refugee camps to go fight the Soviets. Uh, You can definitely call that a low. And uh, the other high in uh, Saudi-U.S. cooperation would would definitely be the first Iraq war. Um, Saudi Arabia was instrumental in the first Iraq war and in, in, uh, in toppling, well, not toppling Saddam then, but preventing Saddam Hussein from conquering Kuwait. The lows of U.S.-Saudi relationship are pretty obvious. Um, number one would be the 1973 oil embargo, where no nation has affected the, the, uh, the standard of living of the average American, uh, more so than the Saudi oil embargo. And um, the other being the, well, obviously 9-11. Um, 15 of those 
hijackers or those terrorists invo- involved in 9-11 were Saudis. They were Saudi citizens trained in the United States and Germany. So right now, Saudi Arabia is, well, they abide by the strictest and most orthodox version of Islam in the world. They subscribe to Wahhabi Islam, Islam and um, that's the same is type of Islam that uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS abide by. So in a way that they are the, um, they set the principle, they set the ide- ideological base for these extreme terrorist organizations. Saudi Arabia is also, um, in terms of human rights, on the very bottom of the list. Um, you could call them a rogue state. They treat their women like garbage. They're basically enslaved. They just recently had the right to drive, where we're going to get into that in a bit. Um, they have public beheadings. There's segregation between men and women. It is not exactly a place that holds progressive values. So right now, Saudi Arabia is in a stage of transition. And what they're transitioning from is 40 years of prosperity from the oil boom. What they're transitioning to is not clear at this moment yet. So most of the Saudis right now, most Saudis living in Saudi Arabia, have only really known prosperity. The majority of the population right now is younger than 30 years old, so they have been living in, they only really know um, this prosperity that is uncommon in the, not only the greater Middle East, but in North Africa as well. And at the beginning of this period of prosperity, a uh, tacit understanding was, was formed with the population, and it's what you call a ruling bargain. And what a ruling bargain is, is a deal made between the ruling family and the population that the Saudi government will provide for the basic material needs for the population. And in return, the population will show obedience. So they won't rebel, they won't protest, they won't try to overthrow the monarchy. This is by no means a written deal, but it's just an understanding between the government and the people. And you see this in other oil-producing Gulf states like Kuwait as well. Now, in Saudi Arabia, the terms of this ruling bargain have been pretty sweet. University students get free education. Um, They're actually paid to go to school. Um, Good students are typically sent to the U.S. or Europe to be educated. Um, You can see this at schools like Penn State, which have a lot of Saudi citizens. Um, They have free medical care. If they don't have medical care in Saudi Arabia, the government will send you to places that does. So if you have brain cancer or something and, and Saudi doesn't have, and um, excuse me, the Saudi medical system doesn't have that many specialists, they will send you to a country that does have a specialist and that will all be at the expense of the Saudi government. Housing is subsidized. Uh, Saudis get free water, which is very scarce in the Middle East. Um electricity used to be subsidized i don't think it is anymore but i mean for all intents and purposes if you're a saudi man it's a pretty sweet life so the current saudi generation has accepted this ruling bargain they agree to obey the saudi state in exchange for very generous material benefits the problem is though is that the ruling bargain can't last forever because their oil reserves will not last forever 
So they know that they have to make a transition from a oil producing economy to something different. And what that is, is not clear at this moment. And the Saudi royal family isn't stupid. They know they have to, they know they have to transform the economy because, again, they have a ruling bargain. If they can't continue to provide the basic material needs to the population, then what's going to prevent them from wanting to say what's going on? What's going to prevent them from wanting democracy? What's going to want them from putting, having a constitution and all that type of stuff if things go bad? If, things are, if those same material needs are not given to them. So this is a big problem that Saudi Arabia is facing right now. Now, one of the changes that took place was when King Abdullah died. And King Abdullah was the king from 2005 to 2015. So he was, qu- he was king for quite a while, about 10 years. Um, he died and his half-brother Salman um, became king. King Salman is the, the, the current king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the guy who was uh, touching the glowing orb with uh, with Trump and uh, the, the king of Egypt. I think that's what most people know him by. But, um, I mean, that wasn't really a big surprise there. It was his half-brother, and that's usually how the succession works. But shortly after becoming king, Salman shuffled the succession arrangement that was in place. He promoted his son, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the guy who just whacked a Washington Post journalist, um, the guy who's been the main architect for the war in Yemen, um, the guy who was recently shunned by the majority of world leaders at the G20 conference, the guy, you know what I mean, the guy who's currently in hot water with the international community. Did I say king of Egypt? I meant president of Egypt. Egypt does not have a king. Okay, so who was Mohammed bin Nayef? Um, so... Mohammed bin Nayef, he was a deputy minister of interior, interior, and uh, the interior is basically basically the police force of Saudi Arabia. Um, he is known for waging war against al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia. He had very good relations with Washington. He was trained by the FBI in the Scotland, Scotland Yard in counterterrorism. So he was Mr. International Security for Saudi Arabia. So the question is, why promote Mohammed bin Salman? Why promote a 30, he was 30 years old when he was promoted, or 31 when he was promoted. Why promote this young guy? It was a very big surprise. He was one of the few princes who was not educated in the U.S. Um, He was, I think what he did is what he was in charge of the royal court, which is a very important position in its own right because it's the person who's in charge of, uh, who's in charge of who gets to speak with the king. Um, he was in charge of defense. Um, however, it was a very odd move. Like, why take this guy who had very good relations with um, with Washington and replace him with this with this young guy, with this young thirty one year old guy who, at this point, has proven himself to be pretty irresponsible. And take note, MBS wasn't King Salman's oldest son. He was one of the younger sons of King Salman. So. For some reason, he became his father's favorite. And what I speculate, it really just has to do with his overall ambition and his previous position of power. Um, like I mentioned, that he was the he was in charge of the royal court, so he was the main gatekeeper to what King Salman heard and what he didn't hear. And um, I mean, he's pretty ruthless in his nature, as you can see by his current events. And um, when he took power, he purged a bunch of the Saudi princes. He purged a lot of members of the of the Saudi government 
um, Benayef, he had to begrudgingly put on, be put on house arrest to sign documents uh, relinquishing his claim to the throne. So this guy is just a very highly ambitious, ruthless, hungry for power young man. And I think a lot of young men, when they get positions of power, you know, they want to take shortcuts. And, um, you know, he wanted to take that shortcut to become the youngest king. Um, by all means, King Salman right now, he has stages of dementia. He's in his 80s. He's probably not going to last that long. So there is a good chance, assuming that MBS stays in power, that he will be the king of Saudi Arabia before he turns 40. And if that happens... This guy could be king for 40 years, assuming, you know, the worst, you know, something crazy doesn't happen, which very well could. Now, something that MBS is concerned about is the country's dependence on oil. And this is for good reasons. The majority of income for the Saudi government is from oil revenue. Another thing that MBS has to, has to worry about is the youth bulge. So the majority of Saudi Arabia's population right now is around or below the age of 30. So they have to figure out and create a, an economy that's able gonna, that, that's going to be able to provide jobs for all these young people who are going to be graduating from school. So MBS thinks that he actually has a solution for this, and he laid it out in his plan called Saudi Vision 2030. And basically the plan is to expand the private, private sector in Saudi Arabia. And he wants to do this without being dependent on oil income. Um, I guess in his state of mind, the Saudi kingdom, the current Saudi state, was founded without oil income. So he thinks that he can transition to a state that doesn't, that's not heavily dependent on oil income. Um, he, he believes that the huge oil reserves that Saudi Arabia sits on has actually disrupted development in most industrial sectors. He's also figured out since... Saudi Arabia will not be as dependent on oil as they are now in the future. They won't be able to shell out the same types of benefits, and they won't be able to offer the same positions in the huge bureaucracies of Saudi Arabia because they're going to drain on the Saudi Arabian treasury. So MBS, through Saudi Vision 2030, he wants to expand Saudi Arabia's private sector, but there's a number of challenges. Since Saudi Arabia has these huge bureaucracies where you can get a job where you don't have to work that hard, there's really not the prospect of being fired. So Saudi companies rather hire foreign workers because they can fire them and kick them out of the country. The Saudi workers aren't very good. They're actually known to be lazy and incompetent in a lot of cases. So something they need to do is they need to figure out a way to make Saudi workers more qualified and more productive. Because when you're spoon-fed for your entire life and you only have these easy jobs in a bureaucracy where you don't have to work hard, where you can take unlimited vacation or whatever, you're not going to be the best worker. You're not going to really know the values of hard work. So that's a huge challenge in a tall order. And this is actually leading for the necessity of more women joining the workforce because in reality, there's actually more women in the university system than Saudi men. So they want to use that upcoming labor talent. And just think about this. If you're a Saudi man and you know that it's going to be very easy for you to get a well-paying job in the Saudi bureaucracy, then you're not going to work that hard. 
You're not going to strive to go to a university. Women have to bust their ass in Saudi Arabia. They have to bust their ass to get into school, and they have to bust their ass to get to get a job. And most likely, if they're getting a job, it's in the private sector, not in the bureaucracy. So they face the prospect of being fired, which makes them, in the long run, better workers. It makes them a more qualified labor force. And this is actually the real reason why women have been given the right to drive in Saudi Arabia. So for since they've had cars in, in, in Saudi Arabia, women have not been able to drive. They've needed either their husbands, their brothers, their sons, their chauffeurs to, to drive them everywhere. Now that they're going to be going to work and participate, participating in the labor force, they're going to have to get behind the wheel of a car and, and drive to work. With the decrease of oil revenue, there's going to be less handouts from the government. So there's going to be less money to pay drivers. So men are not going to want to have to rush home from work or, or be responsible from getting their wife or their sister or their daughter to work. So they said, oh, whatever, why don't we just let them drive? So it wasn't necessarily a, a cultural reason. It was more of an economic reason because men honestly didn't really feel like paying for for chauffeurs they didn't feel like using their time to drive their wives to work they rather than just be able to drive if they're going to be in demand in the workforce and it makes perfect sense it's a good example to show how economic related issues how free market related issues how how economics can drive progressive values rather than force progressive values from the government yeah Obviously, it was okayed by the by the Saudi royal family and the Saudi bureaucracy, but I mean the change came for economic reasons, not because um, MBS watched a league of their own and decided that women have the right to drive. It was because men didn't feel like driving their wives to work. So something that you guys probably know, so I won't get too far into it because everyone's aware of the human rights violations in Saudi Arabia, the uh, gender segregation, and um, as well as the forgotten Saudis, um, about 25% of the Saudi population is in, is in extreme poverty. So not everyone is getting um, you know, the government handouts that other people are. I mean, I think there's different tiers of handouts that people get depending on you know, their family and, and stuff like that. Um, there's also a big problem with censorship in Saudi Arabia. So, for example, if you went into a... Uh, mattress store and there was a woman model for a particular mattress maybe laying and sleeping on it um, they would they would cover the face of the woman so they would just completely cover the face of the woman model um, in that particular advertisement um, another thing is things like um, like crossword puzzles so if you go fill out a crossword puzzle in, in Saudi Arabia they're gonna they're gonna block out uh, things like the the Bible clue in a crossword puzzle. So it's really it is really weird place with lots of censorship as well. For example, a couple years ago, King Abdullah got in trouble for posing in a picture with a bunch of topless women. And when I say topless, I mean they didn't have something covering their face. It meant that their faces were out. So they were all wearing hijabs. They just weren't they didn't have their faces covered so he got in trouble or at least criticized by the religious community which uh leads me to believe that the rulers of saudi arabia care a lot less about buhabi islam than some of the religious leaders so um i guess 
maybe if there was ever a revolution in Saudi Arabia, maybe that maybe the country would go would get an even more intense and sectarian. Which brings me to my next bullet point, the Shiites. Um, So the Shiites are about 10% of the population in Saudi Arabia right now. And um, I mean, they're harshly discriminated against. It's really bad for them. They're They're not allowed to worship in public. There's no Shiite mosque. And I think a big reason is because the Shiites in in Saudi Arabia, they're Twelvers, and Twelvers is the it's the same sect as um, you know countries like Iran. So Saudi Arabia constantly kind of correlates or associates them with Iran, which is not really the case. the The Shiites in 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 Saudi Arabia are they're they're Saudis. They just happen to be Shiites. They're not sympathetic to Iranians. They're they're Arab. They're Arab Shiites. And this prejudice is due to the Saudi education system. Um, the edu- educational system in Saudi Arabia, they, they teach that all other forms of Islam are radical and not really Islam, and they teach intolerance towards anything that's not Wahhabism. So it's a lot to do with just the, the culture and the education system in Saudi Arabia. That's where a lot of this dis- discrimination and prejudice comes from. And this anti-Shiite rhetoric is, uh, is spread through official channels. So if you're a Shiite and you're applying for a job, you're not going to tell someone you're a Shiite. You're going to keep your mouth shut because you're not going to get the job if you're a Shiite. What's really funny about this in Shiite Islam is it's okay in their doctrine to, to pose as a Sunni because Shiites have been historically discriminated against. Sunnis haven't. So it's okay and the Shiite doctrine to pretend that you're a Sunni. And because of this, the Sunnis are like, oh boy, what pussies. Which makes them highly suspicious of Shiites. Just because they're not even, you know, they're, they're too scared to even practice their faith. However, I mean, they should be scared to practice their faith because they, they face massive discrimination. That being said, the Shiite minority doesn't really want anything crazy. They don't want an Islamic republic. They don't want to succeed. They just want equal rights there. So they're not even radical. They're not asking for crazy demands. They just don't want to be treated like second-class citizens. And the way that they treat Shiites causes backlash in the international community. So I think it was in 2013, there was a Shiite martyr. His name was uh, Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr. And he was, uh, I mean, he was kind of a, a uh, thorn in the foot of the Saudi government. He spoke out publicly against them. He, he called for the overthrow of the Saudi family. And, of course, as you can imagine, with no surprise, he was publicly beheaded with a bunch of terrorists. Um, ironically, the terrorists that he, that he was beheaded with were al-Qaeda, which are a Sunni branch. But... Um, when they killed this guy, it caused a lot of international backlash, um, especially with Iran. Um, Iran, I believe, closed the Saudi embassy when they killed this guy. So their persecution of Shiites actually caused um, an anti-Saudi sentiment across the, the Muslim world. And um, it, it's, not, it's due to their behavior. I mean, their behavior is very intolerant. They are at the bottom of the list in terms of human rights. They are constantly on human rights watch. Um, I mean, it's not, it's the place that there's no tolerance. They, they do not abide by human rights. They will throw you in jail if you're critical of the government. Um, there was this blogger by the name of uh, Raif Badawi. He was thrown in jail for criticizing the Saudi government on his blog. 
it's just it's a shit show there you can't you can't speak out against the government you can't you can't go against the ruling bargain that i mentioned where saudi the saudi family provides for your material needs in exchange for material benefits so saudi arabia not the best place we are discovering so the reason why they feel the need to have a, a have a censorship state or a security state is because they feel besieged from the outside and it's mainly to do with their rivalry with Iran and its allies. They were actually somewhat friendly prior, but after 1979, the, the relationship went sour. And it's mainly because Saudi Arabia is pro-Western, Iran is anti-Western, specifically the United States. Um, Iran regards themselves as a great power of the region. Um, historically in the Middle East, I mean, you can trace back the Persian Empire thousands of years. Um, Iran has a much higher population, and uh, the Saudis are new compared to compared to Iran. Um, the Saudis look at Iran as like these crazy revolutionaries. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of divide within the culture, especially religious. So as we know, Saudi Arabia they're a Sunni state. Iran is a Shiite state. And the Sunni, the Sunni-Shiite rivalries only escalated since 2003 when Saddam Hussein was removed from power and hung on live TV. And the reason why it escalated is because all right, Saddam was a Sunni, but Saddam was a Sunni that ruled over a Shiite majority in Iraq. So Iraq is a majority, I think 60% Shiite country. So they removed, so when we removed Saddam in power and we put the Shiites in power, the Shiites are that they now rule Baghdad they had a natural inclination to lean towards Iran. And this makes Saudi Arabia feel much more insecure. And what they do is that they use religion as an incentive to rally other Sunnis to their side against Iran. So there's been a quote-unquote sectarian polarization. And there's, only, there's really only a small amount of truth to that. So a lot of people say this, goes, this rivalry between the Sunnis and Shiites goes back thousands of years. However, Saudi Arabia and Iran are manipulating this fact to, to achieve their national goals. If Sunni and Shiite, Shiite hostilities were enrooted and so embedded, someone forgot to tell half the population in Baghdad before 2003 because half the marriages in Baghdad in the 1990s were marriages between Sunni, Sunnis and Shiites. So this Sunni-Shiite rivalry, it's kind of a myth. For example, among the points of dispute among Saudi Arabia and Iran has been Syria over the past couple of years. A basic bitch will cast the Syrian civil war as the Saudis supporting a Sunni rebellion and the Iranians supporting the Shiite government. To call the government led by Assad a Shiite regime is retarded. The Assad family comes from a religious minority called the Alawites. The Alawites are a religious minority that are not recognized by the Shia Twelvers, what they are in Iran. The Alawites are a very modern, westernized minority of the Shiite sect of Islam. They drink, they wear modern clothing, they have women's rights, they don't dress their women up in beekeeper costumes. There is The Alawites are the most progressive of the most progressive of Islamic sex. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So why are the Iranians supporting Syria? Well, because during the Iranian-Iraq War, Syria had Iran's back while the rest of the Arab world sided with Iraq. Assad's father was a secular Arab nationalist. He did not give two shits about the rivalry between Sunnis and Shiites. He backed Iran because he hated Iraq more. They were two rival part there are two rival parts of the Ba'ath Party because they were both Saddam Hussein and um, Assad's father. They were both members of the Ba'ath Party, but there were two rival sects of the Ba'ath Party that hated each other hated each other. So they hated Iraq more than they hated Iran. So they supported Iran during the Iranian-Iraq War, and Iran never really forgot about it. So they have Syria's back in a serious civil war. Also, about 70% of the army in Syria is Sunni. So 70% of, of Assad's forces are Sunni Muslims. So please just put that in the back burner. Do not call the Assad regime a brutal Shiite regime. It's not at all. It's, it's too much to unpack right now. I want to concentrate on Saudi Arabia. However, it's a myth. So Yemen is another great example of how the Sunni-Shiite rivalry is manufactured. So in the 1990s, a Shiite minority in Yemen, they began to go through a religious revival. And at that time in the 90s, Yemen had a secular government. And the Shiites thought that their religious heritage was being neglected and going away. So in response, the secular government of Yemen promoted a Sunni revival because they were suspicious of the Shiites. So soon you had religious competition between the, Sunni, the Sunnis and Shiites of Yemen. In 2004, the government of Yemen tried to arrest the, the leader of the Shiite movement, which was the Houthi movement. And the Houthi movement resisted. And this began the civil war in Yemen between the Houthis and the, and the government of Yemen. And the fighting eventually spilled over the border of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And if you don't know where Yemen is, Yemen is the, to the south of Saudi Arabia. So that's when Saudi Arabia started clashing with the Houthis back in 2009, I guess before the date of the official war in 2015. Then during the Arab Spring, um, the Yemen, Yemen had its own Arab Spring. Um, the Saudi government and the other Gulf countries, they persuaded the, the, the president of Yemen to step down. However, when they were transitioning to a new government, to a new constitutional government, uh, they didn't invite the Houthis to participate. Despite being the predominant presence in the northwestern part of the country. And then in 2014, when the new, the new president of Yemen was um, having a constitutional convention, the Houthis 
they conquered the capital city of Yemen. So they conquered the, the secular government of Yemen. So Saudi, Saudi Arabia decides after that that they need to get involved in a war and they need to support the secular government of Yemen against the Shiites who they suspect of actually being influenced by Iran to take over the country. And the main reason why they need to keep this country or to keep Yemen stable is because they need port access. If there was ever a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Iran would be able to shut down the Strait of Hormuz. The Strait of Hormuz is on the eastern part of Saudi Arabia. It's right between um, the UAE and Iran. So if there was ever a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Iran would be able to shut down Saudi Saudi Arabia's ability to export oil out of their east coast into the Asian markets. So they had to manufacture this Sunni-Shiite rivalry in order to export oil out of Yemen in case there was a war with Iran. So they had to manufacture this. And in 2015, Saudi Arabia, they launched a brutal war uh, against the Houthis, killing a lot of civilians, blockading uh, their major ports, not allowing foreign aid to get in, um, really having, you know, they're, they're using starvation as a method of starving the civilian population um they've been indiscriminately bombing civilian areas um we all know the story about the school bus they blew up uh we all know the stories about the cholera outbreak within yet in yemen and uh, to this day we do not know what the actual death counts are uh, we hear tens of thousands but um just looking at the situation it certainly seems more than that i guess we're not counting the people who are on the verge of starvation or on the verge of death due to not receiving the proper medical attention. How this affects Saudi Arabia internally? Well, it has certainly turned into a Vietnam-type situation for Saudi Arabia. Uh, by all intents and purposes, the war is a stalemate. Um, Saudi Arabia really hasn't been able to um, gain any type of, of advantage during the war. The only thing they've really been doing is have been killing a lot of people, which has put them under international scrutiny. Um, you can see that there is a bill by Lindsey Graham right now. Can you believe it? A bill uh, co-sponsored by Lindsey Graham to uh, stop arming the Saudis. I mean, it's not really going to do anything. Um, I mean, it's still not going to stop the black blockade, and that's where the majority of the deaths are coming from. However, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. But it's just a, um, it's, it's a very terrible situation what's going on in Yemen right now. Now, Saudi Arabia is spending billions and billions of dollars on this war. So you have to think that if they're in transition to revive their economy, to transform their economy, why would they want to embark on this war? Why would they want to embark on this foreign endeavor that's draining them of their cash, draining them of their international reputation, making it more risky to become a foreign investor in Saudi Arabia? If they're so keen on achieving the, 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 the goals, the, the goals of Saudi Vision 2030, why the hell are they embarking on this war in Yemen? Why are they draining their economy like this? Why are they making themselves international pariahs? Well, you're going to have to ask MBS for this because MBS certainly seems that he's lost control of the ship. You know, the, the plans he set in place, they definitely sound like they're addressing um, very tough challenges in Saudi Arabia, but damn, man, you gotta you gotta do it with some tact. Launching a war in Yemen was a really bad move, man. 
I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry, dude. I was actually a fan of you, MBS, until you started doing crazy shit like killing children and then killing the journalist. You know, it's like the journalist was the least of our concerns, really. Like the journal killing Khashoggi was horrifying. Absolutely. It's terrible and it's sad. But the real concern about what Saudi Arabia is doing has to be what's going on in Yemen. It's it's a genocide on children. It's warfare on children. And um, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't even know if there's any real influence from Iran in this in this uh, Shiite movement in Yemen. So it's just a manipulation between a Sunni Shiite rivalry. They're using it because they need a port city on the le- on they need a port city in Yemen to uh, in the case of war with Iran. So it's all geopolitical at the end of the day. And these geopolitical situations that MBS has gotten into them are really killing them. All right, um, I think I'm going to end it right here. Thank you so much for joining me today, a bro history. If you like the episode, make sure that you rate the podcast and give it a very lovely review and um, give it a five star. Um, you know, we, we really need the help. We're trying to grow. We're trying to get better. We want the act. We want actual feedback. Um, so thanks again for listening. I love you all more than more than a friend. And uh, peace be with you and also with you. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.